Nation. This is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to the final day of a holiday shortened week here in Hong Kong. The time's 8.03 on Thursday the 30th of June. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. In today's business headlines, President Xi Jinping said yesterday that China will press on with zero Covid despite the economic risks and he warned that China couldn't afford to pursue herd immunity. He said on a trip to Wuhan that the country must protect lives at the temporary cost of lower growth. At the European Central Bank's annual conference yesterday in Portugal, the heads of the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England called for rapid action to curb inflation. Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde and Andrew Bailey warned that the era of low interest rates and moderate inflation has come to an end following the massive geopolitical shock of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing fallouts from the coronavirus pandemic. Revised first quarter US GDP data showed a weaker than expected economy. US GDP was revised down by 10% to a 1.6% decline which is the first contraction of the economy since mid-2020. The third estimate of GDP released by the Commerce Department reported personal consumption only increased 1.8% in the first quarter, compared to previous reports of a 3.1% rise. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio Ronfile and Carlos Casanova at UBP, and with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold of SafePro Group. And as always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please text 6393 Email moneytalk at rthk.hk. You'll find us on Facebook, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or you can tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street overnight, U.S. stocks struggled for direction as rate height expectations fell following the revised U.S. GDP data, which indicated less consumer spending and a weaker economy. Fed funds futures markets are now pricing in interest rate cuts starting in December of this year and continuing to March 2023. The S&P 500 slipped 0.1% to 3,819 and the index is down about 20% so far in 2022 and on track for its worst first half of the year since 1970 when the index lost 21%. The Nasdaq Composite was virtually flat at 11,178. The Dow outperformed, rising 82 points to 31,029. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index fell 0.7%. London's FTSE 100 was down 0.2%. Hong Kong stocks tumbled yesterday. The Hang Seng index sank 1.9%. That's 422 points to 21,997. The tech index slumped 3.3%. The Shanghai Composite slipped 1.4% to 3,362. NEO sank 11.4% following a negative report from short seller Grizzly Research that claimed the car maker was playing accounting games to inflate revenue and boost net income margins. 
A NEO spokesperson said the report is filled with false information and misinterpretation. Other auto stocks also fell. Xpeng tumbled 7.4%. Li Auto retreated 8.8%. Geely Auto fell 8.2%. And BYD lost 5%. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil, it dropped 2%, trading at $115.52 a barrel. Gold is down slightly at $1,819 an ounce. And declining rate height expectations sent Treasury bond yields lower. The 10-year yield fell back below 3.1%, dropping 9 basis points to 3.09%. And the US dollar is stronger this morning. The euro is trading at $1.04.5 cents. The bucks at 136 and a half Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.21 and a quarter cents, so nine Hong Kong dollars and 52 cents. The Chinese yuan is trading at 6.70 and a half in offshore markets this morning. And Bitcoin is down slightly, trading right now at $21,100. Asia-Pacific stocks are on the decline this morning in Australia. The ASX 200 off a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225, seven minutes into the open, down half a percent. The Cosby in South Korea, also off half a percent. Looks like the Hang Seng, though, is going to rise about 30 points at the open this morning. Times 808 and a half for the final time in this week. Let's welcome our guests. As always on a Thursday morning, we have personal wealth advisor NGO von Fall. Morning, NGO. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP. Morning, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. Hong Kong's preparing for the expected visit of President Xi Jinping tomorrow in his first trip outside the mainland since the pandemic began. It will also be his first appearance in Hong Kong since the 2019 protests. It's expected to arrive in Hong Hong Kong today for the 25th handover anniversary tomorrow. He'll be here for a two-day visit, although it's believed he's not going to stay in Hong Kong overnight, having elected to spend the night in Shenzhen instead. Enzio and Carlos, as we um, approach tomorrow's 25th anniversary handover celebrations and we enter now the second half of the 50-year promise to leave Hong Kong unchanged with a high degree of autonomy. How would you sum up Hong Kong's economy over the past 25 years? Where have we come from and where have we got to? We have gone nowhere in a hurry. We've gone from hero to zero, sadly. And that's the tragedy of the local government and LegCo, which have elected to frankly do nothing to boost the welfare and the well-being of the Hong Kong population itself. Um, This is because of the fearful, comfortable inertia. We've rested on past stories, and that means that instead of taking the initiative and assuming responsibility, we've elected to blame Beijing for all of our woes if our behavior really interests Beijing, who must be very disappointed in us. And this has led to irresponsible leadership. There's an ancient wisdom which gives credence to the Americans saying, if you don't like change, you would like irrelevance even less. And Hong Kong has not changed. We've got a homemade mess of social housing, competition, lack of it, English, poor, appalling, rotting, and vocational training non-existent virtually for the meaningful industries of tomorrow. These are issues that have have been our 
domestic issues to to look at and they simply haven't been done. I think it's been very sad. The locals are angry. Beijing is angry. And this has then presented a feeding ground for America to, to put its claws into, into Hong Kong because of this visceral anti-Chinese hatred in America. So I think it's all a pretty terrible report card, frankly. But, it's, but again, I stress it's a homemade mess. So do you think we've thrown away a good opportunity over the last 25 years to, to transform our economy? Totally. I just think that once you have started receding in the race, it's very, very difficult to catch up. Families are leaving. We all know the story, so I don't have to repeat that. Um, and um, there's just no sense of urgency in in order to do things. I always talk about these ridiculous hub. We may as well call it Hub Kong because we're going to become a hub of this and this and this and this and this. Well, we could have become that for the 20, last 25 years, if not before, frankly. Okay, so it's not just the locals' fault. But I, the last 25 years have been run by local government, local LegCo, and they've done very, very little to really enhance the well-being of the people. That's why the people are angry. So your report card, Enzio, not very good. Carlos, what's your report card looking like for the past 25 years, economically-wise? Uh, well, I, I do agree with Enzio that the government could have done more to diversify the economy. Um, we all know how um, dependent the Hong Kong economy is on the main pillars of growth, um, financial sector, um, and also the housing sector, of course, which is something that we should not forget. A lot of the wealth and a lot of the growth in the past uh, 20 years has been on the back of this uh, tremendous increase in the value of um, housing stock in Hong Kong. Um, so the scorecard on my on my on my side is not great in terms of diversification, but we we have to remember that um, Hong Kong did achieve uh, a few uh, great. Um, feats as well over the past 25 years, it, you know, its stock market capitalization increased tenfold. A lot of that increase can be traced back to Chinese companies listing in the in the region. Um, I think it was 65% of all listings were mainland uh, mm -hmm. listings in 2020. Um, and, and so that is something that I think uh, is also a great source of, uh, you know, of, of wealth and of, of income for local residents and something that uh, should be um, you know, celebrated and also uh, you know, preserved and, and sort of Hong Kong should take steps to ensure that it remains a global financial center and, and the preferred IPO destination for many Chinese companies in the next 25 years as well. So there are, I think it's more of a mixed picture for me, uh, but definitely a lot of progress that still needs to be made on, on the diversification front. If we look at those four pillars, Carlos, that you mentioned, the four pillar industries, financial services, tourism, trading and logistics, also professional services. Um, if you go back to 2000, when records began, they contributed 49.4% of the city's GDP. In 2020, that had gone up to 55.1%. So still reliant on uh, those same four industries, if anything more reliant. I suppose the one sector that you can say has really declined is manufacturing. Um, I remember back in uh, the 70s, the early 80s, mm. you couldn't pick up a product in the UK without it saying made in Hong Kong somewhere um, on it. That's been the major decline, hasn't it? We still seem to be very dependent on the same four things. Yes, definitely. We've, um, in, of course, seen a decline in manufacturing. Uh, most of the manufacturing has moved from the, the Asian tigers into mainland China. And um, so naturally, we saw a shift uh, from Hong Kong just across the border. 
but I would venture to say that the other two pillars, um, so excluding professional services or financial services and the housing sector, I would venture to say that um, uh, transportation uh, in Hong Kong's role in trade and, and, and as a global aviation and transportation hub has also diminished significantly since the outbreak of COVID. Mm. And of course, there's no tourism left. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anything, you know, over the past two and a half, three years, the economy has become even more dependent on only two pillars. Um, and that is a situation that should be worrying for everybody going forward. Mm. So if we want to change that going forward and get more economic diversification, uh, let me ask you both one one sector. I mean, we're very, very dependent, aren't we, on the property developers? You know, we have limited amounts of land. We auction it to the highest bidder. As a result, property developers have de- dominated the economy. Um, and there's not an awful lot of incentive for the uh, for the government to change that because they get a lot of their tax uh, from that as well, from stamp duty, land premiums. Is that one of the things that's got to change? I think so, but I'm not going to, I don't have it in for the property developers. They've actually been pivotal in building Hong Kong, as my wife always points out. It was when nobody believed in Hong Kong that these boys stepped in and said, we'll take up and, and we'll take up the bat and do things. So nobody's saying they're bad people. It's just that times do move on. If you want things to stay the same, you have to change most things. But, the, but they now dominate, they've moved into dominating other things as well, haven't they? Those same groups now dominate all of our uh, retail outlets and supermarkets, our telecoms uh, firms. So is that part of the one of the reasons for the lack of competition that you talk about? Yeah, yeah. But again, you're as strong as your enemy is weak. I can't blame them for moving into these sectors. If the government has allowed it, then why shouldn't they do it? They'd be silly not to, is my point. So I really think that the if the government had... had with some foresight, just a little bit of foresight, as opposed to peering over its shoulders saying, ooh, once I get retired, I get a nice job with one of these large groups. Um, if they just had some responsibility and said, look, we really need to put some revolution or whatever, you know, de- competition into telecoms, banking, um, medical, which has nothing to do with property, even I know that, um, then I think we would have got somewhere. But again, if, if, if the government doesn't do anything proactively, then the, the property developers, etc., they're practically within their perfect economic rights to do what they have. Do you think that's an issue, um, Carlos, that if we want to become more competitive, we've somehow got to break the dominance of you know, large groups that, that really dominate the whole of our economy? Um, I, I do think so. I think competition is something positive and something that we shouldn't be afraid of. I agree with Enzio that in the past there's been a little incentive for um, the leaders of the city to implement uh, reforms in this front, given um, you know the electoral system um, and who, who their constituents uh, re- really are. I think that is something that will probably change going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, we all have to adapt to the new reality. And the truth is um, we have extremely bubbly asset prices in Hong Kong, particularly real estate. Um, the affordability ratio is the worst it's ever been. Um, around, uh, you know, 70% of average incomes go to pay, pay mortgages, which leaves very little in terms of disposable for average households in Hong Kong. And that situation is not sustainable going forward. So given that most of these uh, real estate tycoons also have um, stakes in other areas of the economy, in, you know, supermarkets, pharmacies, uh, the Telecoms. consumption front as well, I think it's in their own self-interest to, to give a little bit back uh, and allow That's for some point, competition. Yeah. 
So if we want to change that, we've got to change our tax system as well, haven't we? Because the government isn't really under a lot of pressure to change it because it benefits itself. It gets um, a huge chunk of our revenues uh, from things like land premiums and stamp duty. Um, But we have a very narrow tax base. No capital gains tax, no VAT, no dividends tax. Haven't we got to change that and reform that alongside reforming our economy? That's correct. I think, uh, you know, the potential to introduce a capital gains tax is is not in, is, is a possibility at this juncture. Um, I think it's something they can consider VAT tax. Um, I think less likely, but also a possibility, of course, especially if government revenues start to dwindle, um, you know, post-COVID. Um, so I, I think it's definitely something that the new administration will have to consider. Where do we stand on innovation and technology? We hear a lot of talk oh. about that. The Hong Kong government has earmarked now 16 billion Hong Kong dollars to grow Hong Kong into an INT hub over the next few years. Was that an opportunity that we missed out on over the past 25 years? And can we do it now going forward? Or do you think we've missed the boat? Last 29 years, good man. Shenzhen, when I was there in 86, was already beginning to... It was the size of a duck pond with a duck in the middle. Now it's larger than Hong Kong and it's the tech centre of China. So for us to now throw government money trying to get a bunch of non-English speaking youth to develop tech, that's kind of a joke. Um, And um, I just don't see how that can happen if the education system, frankly, isn't really um, cut out to educate the youth going forward. Again, it's a backward-looking educational system, especially with the middle-class education, especially back to my old chestnut, the vocational training here, which is mm. really could, again, be a leader in Asia, but no, we're resting on our laurels, electing to do nothing about it. What do you think, Carlos? Can we do this, or have we missed the boat in terms of becoming an INT hub? I think, given the way things uh, are going, it's more likely that Hong Kong will be a, a service center or a financial center for all of the tech um, R&D and innovation that is taking place across the border. So I think it's important for us to choose how we spend our money wisely um, and to pick uh, a, a few areas where we are more competitive in the context of the Greater Bay Area. And I'm not sure if um, you know we, we, we have it nailed nailed down. I think there are other areas um, within services as well, health healthcare, uh, vocational training and other areas that Enzio was mentioning mm. that um, where the lower hanging fruit are perhaps a little bit more. Old age care is, for instance, one, excuse me, old age care. Yeah, agreed, is, is, agreed. Is, I mean, death is a growth mm. industry. It sounds awful, but, um, you know, we've got the demographics here. Nobody has to tell you anything about that. Also, the same arbiters with the same thing with China demographics. We all know the story. Well, where's the innovation? Mm. In, a, in, a, in a sense, uh, Singapore has done a better job at that than Hong Kong. Yes. I mean, what stands out is our lack of new entrepreneurs, doesn't it? If you look at uh, the United States, for example, over the last 25 years, um, you've seen you know, entrepreneurs build up also a huge amount mm. of wealth like Jeff Bezos, um, uh, Bill Gates and so on. Where are our ones? We don't seem to have done any, do we? That, that maybe is reflective of the fact that um, our economy has changed the same, do you think? It remained the same. It remained the same. It's just, I like that change the same. I'll have to think about that one philosophically. <laughs> remained but the same. No, yes. I mean, again, if you don't like change, you would like irrelevance even less. And we've been resting on our laurels. So if the new leadership here, if we get leadership for a change, frankly, can start putting some 
blowing some air and some, some really wind into some typhoons into this whole area that we need some change, then we're on to, we may be able to catch up a little bit. But mm. I'm very gloomy about that. Let me ask you then, going forward, the next 25 years, will Hong Kong remain a global financial centre? No. Why not? It can't because, we. first of all, our youth can't speak English. Having been in finances for 40 years myself, If you, as a bilingual, if you can't speak English, you just ain't going to go nowhere in a hurry because who's going to do the settlements, the operational side of the business, just, just for open? So it's not your and our level of education. It's really the, the, the middle-class educational level. And if they can't do the settlements and the operational side in English with the rest of the world, then forget it. Um, then there's the lacking, the intransigence um, in terms of becoming a fintech hub. We, what we were just discussing, there's no, we're still flailing around with checkbooks, which I, as a 68-year-old, am very happy about. But I don't think that I'm actually the way of the future for some odd reason. So um, I think that that's, again, it's, it's just this, it's this lack of, there's, there's no sense of urgency in Hong Kong, and that's the problem. Carlos, can we remain an international financial centre? Well, just on that point on checkbooks, uh, don't get me started. <laughs> yes, it's definitely something that needs to improve. Yes, um, I, I think in terms of uh, volumes and revenues f going through the city, we, we we should continue to see an increase um, of southbound flows, um, given the very important role that Hong Kong still needs to play, helping China to um, rebalance uh, all of that corporate debt and, and transition towards okay. a more market-oriented um, economy. I think currently uh, many of the Chinese companies are still very dependent on, on bank loans um, with the equity and uh, bond markets remaining underdeveloped. So I think Hong Kong will still play an important role. We will still see an increase in flows, but as NCO was mentioning, it will increasingly become a financial center for China as, as opposed to yes. a, a truly global yes. financial center. Yes, yeah, yeah. So plugged into the greater Bay Area, though, can we remain then uh, relevant and, and, and a financial center? That, that's the future, isn't it? I don't know what we have to offer specifically. I, I, I mean, I dearly love Hong Kong, and that's what it's, it's with great sadness that I say these things because it's not. To, I don't have it in for Hong Kong, but I just don't see what we specifically. We, we can't speak Mandarin. We can't speak English. Um, there's very little innovation impetus out of Hong Kong. There's very little reform impetus of, out of Hong Kong. So I think it's great for the good and the great here to talk about the wonderful golden opportunities of the Greater Bay Area, but when you, when you start boiling it down, the locals in China, they want to learn English, they want to get going, they want to work. The locals prefer to have a staycation at the Mandarin Oriental with 50% vouchers. Okay, well, thank you very much. Enjoy the celebrations tomorrow and the long weekend. You heard their personal wealth advisor, NCO Von Fahl, Carlos Casanova, who's senior Asia economist at UBP. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.25 on the phone from Taiwan. Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, yesterday, NATO leaders, they've been meeting in Madrid. They described China as a systemic challenge to Euro-Atlantic security. It's the first time that China's been mentioned in the Western Defence Alliance's strategy document, which was updated this month for the first time in 12 years. It follows a whole series of things over the last couple of weeks, doesn't it, where China really um, has been targeted. We had the G7 summit 
in Germany, which mentioned uh, China 14 times uh, in its communique. Uh, we've also got uh, uh, the U.S.-Taiwan trade talks now going on. Where, where do you think we stand with U.S.-China relations? Uh, probably not going to improve and maybe getting worse, but uh, a multilateral organization or a bilateral uh, meeting between two countries mentioning China, competition with China, uh, concerns about various aspects of a relationship with China, whether that's trade or uh, the human rights issues that are often mentioned. Not a surprise, not something new. It's a trend that's been going on now for several years, certainly more pronounced during the Trump administration and the Biden administration, to a lesser extent, is following up on that. Uh, and I, would, I would say to China, you know, it comes with the territory of being a, a large economy and a military power. But of course, we're going to see a lot of uh, criticism uh, from the Chinese government and Chinese media, which, again, it's just it's part of the drama that comes with these things. Do you worry that this is broadening out? Previously, this was really U.S. complaints uh, against China. But at the G7, um, it seems to have got its other uh, sort of G7 members on side as well and on the same page um, in, po in opposing sort of China's uh, style of economic growth and some of the things it's doing. Is that a concern? Uh, that, it's certainly true specifically with regard to Europe that uh, it's a change, but it, we also have to keep in mind it's incremental. And it, it wasn't so long ago that we were discussing problems and concerns in the bilateral Europe-China relationship, but there were still European leaders who were pushing to get the investment agreement uh, signed and implemented, and you know, that has gone on, on pause now as well. So, Yes, uh, if we did a score sheet, we would probably have uh, more negative aspects of the relationship uh, with regard to Europe, certainly with regard to Australia and Japan as well, India, obviously, U.S., obviously. Uh, so certainly more negatives, but uh, the trade aspects of these relationships still seems to be important. So we, we, we just don't know how it's going to you know, end over time, you know, three mm. months from now, six months from now, because especially for Europe and to a lesser extent Australia, as well. You know, the ability to export to China is still so important. So how the politicians are going to react to pressure from business and, and an inevitable blowback, but there will be a blowback from big business that do have important relationships in China. That's definitely something to watch. Do, do you, how, how much do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, and China's unwillingness to condemn that has really poisoned relations between um, China and the West and its allies? There would have been other stuff. So the, the issues that are on the agenda, whether it's between the U.S. and China, uh, increasingly the European countries, again, India, Japan, Australia, the, the, these agenda items and points of contention are, are so voluminous, for lack of a better word, that, that the China's position on Ukraine and its willingness to continue to do business with Russia, which, as we know, it's not alone, you know, India and some countries in the Middle East being obvious examples, uh, it's just one more, I, I certainly wouldn't call it, for example, an accelerant. Uh, it's easy to, to accuse China on, on that issue specifically, but again, uh, I think critics of China would have found other issues to, to uh, point out as well. Isn't though what, what this is leading to is it's leading to now the global economy separating into into different blocks. You have a Chinese-led block, a Western-led block. Oh, you're seeing that in things like uh, the G7 now setting up its own uh, investment uh, initiative to counter uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Is that is that where we're heading for? 
Certainly, we see that in so many spaces, not just infrastructure, as you mentioned. We've seen it in tech and, and specifically the regulation of, of, of the tech industry, whether that's data protection, online sales, e-commerce. We see it with digital currencies, uh, health issues as well, especially in the wake of the, the global pandemic. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, this kind of bifurcated industry or industrial policy or regulatory policy. It's the trend. We're obviously getting away from what the organizations like the WTO, or to a lesser extent, APAC, were supposed to achieve, and that's clearly the trend. Ross, thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taiwan. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this week. Down in Australia, the ASX 200 slipping now 0.4%. Uh, same story for the Nikkei 225 in Japan. The Cosby down a little bit more, uh, down 0.6%. Does look like the Hang Seng will make a small gain of about 30 points or so at the open this morning. Tomorrow's a public holiday in Hong Kong, as you're well aware, so Money Talk will return on Monday with James Ross presenting the show. I'll be back on Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great long weekend. Do please stay tuned to Radio 3. Back chats coming up with Jim Gould and Janice Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast. Mainly cloudy, squally showers and thunderstorms. Maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees. Those showers and thunderstorms will continue in the next couple of days and they're going to be heavy at times during the weekend. We do have a standby signal number one in force, also a thunderstorm warning. It's 28 degrees right now, 90% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. The American singer R. Kelly has been sentenced to 30 years in jail after a trial in which he was found to have used his position to sexually abuse women and teenage girls. He trafficked women between U.S. states, assisted by members of his entourage, over the course of two decades. One of the prosecutors, Breon Peace, said the Grammy Award-winning performer was a pl- prolific sexual predator. Today... The sentence shows that the witnesses reclaim control over their lives and over their futures. These are voices of mostly black and brown women and children that were heard and believed and for whom justice was finally achieved. The observatory says the standby signal number one will remain in place before noon. Local winds are not expected to strengthen significantly, but the weather will deteriorate over the next couple of days. Kok Hin is a senior scientific officer at the observatory. The tropical cyclone will move in the general direction towards the coast of western Guangdong in the next couple of days and intensify gradually. Under the influence of the overturned rain bands associated with the tropical cyclone, the local weather will gradually deteriorate with squally showers, thunderstorms, and swells on the 1st of July. Showers will be heavy at times over the weekend. And after tropical cyclone making landfall under the influence of an active southerly airstream, there will still be occasional showers this week. Meanwhile, the government says Cathay Pacific's flight CX-845 from New York will be suspended for five days starting from tomorrow. That's because the number of COVID patients on board exceeded the number allowed. Overseas, NATO leaders have promised unwavering support for Ukraine at a summit of the alliance in Madrid. They've issued a declaration pledging to step up political and practical backing for Kyiv while condemning Russia's military campaign. Jens Stoltenberg is the NATO chief. President Zelensky made clear that Ukraine relies on our continued support. 
and our message to him was equally clear. Ukraine can count on us for as long as it takes. Ukraine and Russia have carried out their biggest prisoner exchange since President Putin launched his military campaign. 144 soldiers have been swapped from each side. They include 95 who were captured defending the Azovstal steelworks in the ruined southern port of Mariupol. A court in France has found the only survivor of the group behind the November 2015 Paris attacks guilty of terrorism and murder. Salah Abdeslam has been sentenced to a full life term. Gunmen killed 130 people across the French capital. Sri Lanka's government says it may not be able to secure shipments of petrol for more than three weeks. 